Don't call it a comb back, I'll have hair for years. Wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Hey, what up, girl? my glasses, I'm out the door. I'm gonna hit this city. Let's Before go. I leave, brush my teeth with a bottle of Jack. Cause when I leave for the night, I ain't coming back. I'm talking. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios. Uh, and we've got uh, Mike Mayock saying bubble butt uh, three different times. This is the press box. Like when they're deciding to draft a player. Is that what they talk about? Well, like Gruden's like, oh, he's a yes. football player. And Max's like, no, no, this guy's got a bubble yeah. butt. Or the best thing in the world for them would be have both. With Grady and Bischoff. Like, you're not only a football player, but you have a bubble butt and you don't play your groin. I mean, if you can get that trifecta, then you've got something. On Las Vegas. The bubble butt, who knows what position he played and, um, and don't pull your groin. If they could have that, they could. I mean, they could win the division if you have a bunch of those guys. Bunch of bubble butt football players. Yes, from Clemson. Got to be from Clemson or Alabama. We'll see what happens this year's draft. You know they're picking someone from one of those two schools. Ed Graney, Tyler Bischoff, Jared Justice running the stuff at the studio. We're at home as usual. Let's start it off. The first bite. Is the media too mean to Derek Carr? Are we asking the media or Derek Carr? <laughs> because, <laughs> we're asking, we're asking Brent Musburger today. Uh, I was going to say, those might be two different, completely different answers. Um, I can only speak from the media side of things. And, well, he thinks that, um, and he doesn't read or listen to anything either. Uh, so I can only say, I know you're going you're gonna to tell us what... Um, Brent said, but I'll leave it at this because I'm not going to, you know, get into what Derek Carr thinks. Um, I can only speak for this show. And when it comes to Derek Carr, I think we've been pretty consistent in that if you have an ability to upgrade any position, and I'm talking more about now the reports on Deshaun Watson and, and Russell Wilson, then I think it's irresponsible not to call and to check. And maybe you have no chance and maybe the conversation's one minute and maybe it's like six days. But I never thought of that and this might sound weird, I don't know what you think, about a knock on Derek Carr. I think he's a fine NFL quarterback. But if you have a chance to get a top five quarterback, then you have to do your – it's like J.J. Watt. I think you had to call in J.J. Watt. I think you have to call in certain people. So if that's being negative towards Derek Carr, then okay. I just don't – I don't view it that way. So Brent Musburger went on the Rich Eisen show, and here's what he had to say. I have to tell you that I'm a little disappointed by the continuing chatter about the Raiders. You know Deshaun Watson's name, of course, came up, and it's possible he'll be moving on from Houston. Derek Carr's offense was more productive than Deshaun Watson's. Now, I'm not saying that Derek Carr is a better prospect, but people need to look at what Derek accomplished last year with the eight wins. The problem that they lost eight games was never on Derek Carr. It was completely on the Raider defense. Musburger also said, Musburger also said, Derek Carr was a playoff quarterback last year. Strange thing to say about a quarterback that didn't play in the playoffs. And if they were, and if they wished to make a move, it would be in the backup spot. It doesn't make any sense at all for the Raiders to spend a lot of what is going to be a reduced salary cap on a new quarterback. And I'm a little disappointed in the local press in Las Vegas in not really supporting him and what he was able to accomplish last year with this team. The problem with the Raiders is on the defensive side of the ball. Okay. My my question is, does Brent Musburger know there's an entire radio station dedicated to the Raiders? Yeah. He knows I mean, Raider Nation Radio exists, yeah. right? And believe me, a lot of it supports the Raiders. 
uh, like, which is fine. That's their station. I mean, I have no problem with it. But and a lot of what he said, like, isn't completely wrong. Like they were horrible defensively. Maybe if they're a better defense, he's a playoff quarterback, all that. But I and mean, I've said this a lot more than just Derek Carr. I'm going to speak for myself, myself only. It's not our responsibility to support Derek Carr. That's not that's not no. our job. That's no. not our job to support <laughs> Derek Carr. Our job is to report on what the team does. You know, we have a radio show. I have a column. We both have opinions. That's our job to give opinions. You might agree or disagree. I tell people all that time about when they, you know, they write in about my column. It's like, you don't understand. It's not important if you disagree or agree. It's just important if you read it. And then you're, I know people are going to disagree with it. Just like the show, we want people to listen. And not everyone's going to agree with all our opinions. So let's get out that right away. Nothing against Derek Carr. But the last thing our job is to support him in any way. That, that, that's not for us to do. Um, again, I, like I said, I'm not going to disagree with everything he said about the defense and all of that. But when you get to the point of the, the media needs to support somebody, that's that's going across a line that we're just I'm just not going to cross. I would say in this city, the media is too nice to the Raiders. There are not enough people that are critical of the Raiders here. John, like the, the whole conversation we had at the end of the year, John Gruden, three years without making the playoffs, back-to-back years where the second half of the season, they melted down and blew away any chance of going to the playoffs. And there's no one questioning John Gruden's job, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, you as an NFL coach, you go three years without the playoffs, and the way the last two years ended, not a lot of coaches survived that. But John yeah. Gruden did, and not only did he survive it, nobody's even second-guessing that John Gruden's back. Like, to it, me, if anything, if anything, the media in this town is way too soft on the Raiders because people aren't aren't willing to be critical of a team that completely blew it last season. I mean, they were in terrific position to make the playoffs and then just everything sucked at the end of the year. And the whole meltdown at the end of the season, Derek Carr is included in that. Like Carr maybe isn't the biggest blame there, but if you go back to that game against Atlanta, they lost a game to the Falcons, a bad Falcons team where the offense had the worst performance of any offense last season in the entire league. Like, the offense wasn't without blame last season either. So, if anything, to me, the media is too soft here. I don't know what Musburger's talking about. Well, and I, I do think, whether it's right or wrong, um, I think some of the perception on Gruden uh, in terms of his job status, I think people just go back to, it's not, it's not right, I'm, I'm not saying it's right, but they go back to he has a 10-year contract. And I think that's just in people's heads. Now, again, the great thing about, or the fascinating thing about this contract, you and I have talked about it before. I have no idea, and I don't think many people do, what that contract really is. I don't know what's guaranteed. I don't think it was ever reported. $100 million is guaranteed. It was just like, you know, $10 million a year for 10 years. Well, it's like a, a player's contract. You know, J.J. Watt, $34 million. Yeah, but only 23 is guaranteed. I mean, so I can't tell you if there's outs. I can't tell you if... They can fire him after five years and not owe him anything. So when the perception is he's got a 10-year deal, and I think that's why a lot of people don't go after his job very hard. It's like, well, we could say he needs to be fired, but he's got a 10-year deal. He's not going anywhere. Again, doesn't make it right. But I think that's where the stuff with Gruden comes into factor with his job. People just assume, well, it's only three years and he's, you know, he's here for 10 years, you know, because that's the contract. But we don't really know that. Like, nobody really knows the ins and outs of that contract. Um, again, I'll go back to Carr. I agree with you. I mean, like, yeah, it was mostly the defense, but when you don't make it, you don't make it. And he'll be a starter now uh, coming up if they keep him. And I think God's already they're going to keep him for eight years. He'll be the eighth year starter. 
and they'll have made the playoffs one time. We've said this, not his fault. Hurt, got injured, didn't play in the playoff game. That That's, you know, he got injured. But at the end of the day, one playoff in seven years. I'm but, sorry, that's not very good. And a lot of it goes into it. I'm not just putting it on him, but you're the quarterback. You're that position. And that's fair or not. That is how you are judged in this league. That's all the way you're judged. Brady's the greatest ever because he has all the rings. That That's how you're judged. One playoff in seven years. That's not good enough for a quarterback. The other part of Musburger's quote was, um, people need to look at what Derek accomplished last year with the eight wins. Um, first off, quarterback wins, not of useful stat to use at any point in the history of evaluating quarterbacks. But second off, in what world is winning eight games and missing the playoffs an accomplishment? Like, what kind of participation trophy accomplishment is that? Are we really going to look back and say, well, Derek Carr, what a quarterback. They won eight games last year. No one has ever thought that was an accomplishment. There's no. not a single person that thinks last year was a good season for the Raiders. Like, because they won eight games. Nobody's looking back and saying, oh, thank God they got to eight. Like, that's an irrelevant uh, accomplishment to win eight games. So the idea that we should be praising Derek Carr because he accomplished an eight-win season as the quarterback is un like, like that's unbelievably naive and the most homer thing you can possibly say is well they got from seven wins to eight wins last season what a quarterback no no you're right and i i just don't agree i mean look i just i'm gonna i can only speak for myself i, I and i've said it a lot to people this is what our job is uh if you don't like our job then Again, you don't have to read. You don't have to listen. I tell people all the time, if you have issues, there's, you, you know, switch the dial. If you're a Raider fan, there's great guys. Our friends over right now doing a show on the Raiders. You want to hear a ton of Raider stuff, then, you know, switch over. I think those guys are very balanced, Pritch and Clay. And if they're bad, they're bad. But, I mean, there's a lot of Raider talk on that show. It's their, it's their station. You're going to get all Raiders all the time. That's great. That's what that station's about. Um, but I, it's, I don't think on this show, and I know when I write, it's never going to be about my feeling that I have to support Derek Carr. I mean, I'm just going to watch Derek Carr and write what I think it has. And again, it's nothing personal against Derek Carr. We barely know him other than how he feels about the media and that he's disrespected because he says that all the time. And for someone who says all the time, you know, that I don't listen and I don't read and you say it that much, guess what? You listen and read. I mean, he'll bring that up constantly <laughs> about being disrespected and I don't care anymore. Yeah, you do care because no one's asking you about this and you're still talking about it. I mean, I've never seen someone who's felt that disrespected and says he doesn't care who talks about it as much as Derek Carr does. Again, whatever. I mean, I'll just judge him as a quarterback. If he wants to say that, he can say that. That's up to him. That's his choice. But our job is to evaluate that team and evaluate the quarterback and all other positions. And it's not like Derek Carr is the only one we've talked about. You've talked you know, heavily on the defense and the positions they lack and what they need to do. It's not a bashing Derek Carr. It's just looking at that team and giving our opinion about it. And that's what I think we'll continue to do, and that's what we should do. The quarterback position is the most important position in the sport. Nobody in their right mind would argue that Derek Carr is the best quarterback in the NFL. So no. if a quarterback that is potentially better than Derek Carr is available, you should absolutely be at least interested in what yes. it would take to acquire that guy. And that's what Deshaun Watson and Russell Wilson are. Now, uh, I find that the whole point of this conversation is funny. Because it was last season, last offseason, I should say, that uh, Ed Grady wrote the story that accompanied the Tom Brady Photoshop in a Raiders jersey on the front of the Review Journal. Like, that's what, that, oh, man, you were just hating on Derek Carr last year. You wanted them to get Tom Brady? Who would ever want Tom Brady in here, Ed? 
I have no control over pitchers. Well, I have no control over pitchers. Um, no, but that, again, that goes back to, you're right. You're exactly right. There were rumors or whatever you want to talk about it, reports. Tom Brady was out there. The Raiders were one who might be interested, which they should have been. It's Tom he, he Brady. He talked to Mark Davis at a UFC yeah. fight. Like, yeah, I mean, what, what like, do you why wouldn't you be interested in Tom Brady? And by the, by the way, he did pretty well with the team he eventually went to this year. So you've got to, you can't be Mike Mayock. And the ironic thing is Mike Mayock's holding a uh, Zoom today essentially to talk about, you know, the non-combine and workouts. But my guess is some of these questions will be asked as well. You can't be in the media in this town, whatever it is, radio, TV, and, 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 and print, and hear Mike Mayock say, we have to look at upgrading every position, and which he has said in the past. You know, in the offseason, you look at everything, every position, every game, everything that happened, and then get hurt if someone suggests that they should make a call on Deshaun Watson and Russell Wilson, who are top five quarterbacks, and you have maybe... I mean, we can argue this top 10, top 12 quarterback. We ever put him. I think he's a good quarterback in the NFL, Derek Carr. But you can't then come out and say, well, you shouldn't say that. No, you should say that because they should do their due diligence. And like I said, Houston and Seattle might hang up on them. The conversation might be two minutes. This is what we want. And you hang up because you think it's too much. But if you don't make that call as Mike Mayock, you're being irresponsible. You're not doing the best for your team. Right, you're not doing your job if you if you no. haven't called Seattle or left a voicemail with the Houston. Yes, Texans, left a voicemail. <laughs> you're not doing your job as the general manager of the Raiders. All right, no. coming up next, we'll jump into the Golden Knights. Pete DeBoer, he's got an interesting decision on what he should do with his lines tonight against Minnesota. It's a, the toughest trophy in hockey to win, uh, and it's an unbelievably tough road. And you know, we've got to learn some things from this about you know, what works in the playoffs and how you score in the playoffs. I'm still getting used to and getting to know the group. Uh, but, you know, the goal of this team is to win a Stanley Cup, you know, and they're, they're right in that window. It's the Press Box with Grady and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas, 1100 AM and 100.9 FM. And I are at home. Jared is in the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studio. Finley Toyota, here for you at FinleyToyota.com. I do have a quick question. Where did the phrase, like, championship window or title window come from? Like, why do we refer to it as a window? Uh, I guess it's open when you're good and closed when you stink. I have absolutely, I mean, I I, I mean, I know what it means. Like, yeah, they're at but like, stage, why not? Why not stages of their career. Why not door? Oh, Why is it not a title just, door? Like I'm just, I'm just curious. You're taking, Why we're it, talking to, about you're taking it, yeah, you're taking it to a level that very I, important. There's, Ed. Because there's the no door, smart answer. The door stays closed. Like I, I don't know what sort of house you lived in, but you close the door. Where the window, I mean, the window can stay open until it's time to close the window. Oh, I don't man. open my windows. Awesome. I open my doors way more than I open my windows. Even so. when you, all right, when you were living in Mississippi during the summer, you didn't keep a window open and have like seven oscillating oh, fans. God, no. Oh God, no! Do you know what it's like? It's like the the humidity will just seep into your house, and you'll be sweating on the inside now too. Oh, no chance. You keep the outside out and the inside in. You don't go outside. That's the key. Just like here in the summer. Why would you want to keep the windows closed? Ridiculous assumption there. Yeah, now, you could come to my house. Everything's closed, and we're at eighty-five on the temperature, so <laughs> doesn't really matter. We, we get it either way. The window was never open. Yes. No. 
Um, so, Golden Knights play the Wild tonight. We had a thrilling game on Monday, rematch uh, the second game of the eight they're scheduled to play this season against the Wild. But I'm curious because we saw Pete DeBoer change his lines against Colorado. They got a win in that final game of the series against Colorado. Uh, he stuck with that against Minnesota. And third period, they're down 4-2. to two. Pete DeBoer changed, and he went back to his original lines. He put together Marcia So, Carlson, Smith. He put back together uh, Stevenson with Stone and Pacioretty. So, Ed, what lines do you think Pete DeBoer should use tonight against the Minnesota Wild? Should, I'm not sure, but I'll tell you, I guarantee he's going to use the ones that were in the third period, much like after Colorado, he stayed with the same ones because I think those guys are, you know, they go with what's working and they're, they're, they they never change. And someone asked him about that after Colorado, like, is this just a good matchup? Like, you know, are you going to go back to your lines? Because this is, you just found that this would be a good matchup. And he actually had a quote on a Zoom saying, well, you know, when things when things go well, you probably stick with what you're doing. And they went well until they were down four to two. So he changed. So I, I just think coaches change based on what's happening in either a game or a period. And they were really good in the third period. So when they tweet out lines from the skate this morning, I'll be, I'll be shocked if it's not the same lines we saw in the third period. So there are two things that I don't like about the lines and defensive pairs that they used to start the game against Minnesota. First off on the lines. I don't like Keegan Colasar playing on a line with William Carlson because you're taking your best center and having him play with Colasar, who apparently cannot shoot. Like, just the first period against Minnesota, Colasar had two great chances, and he didn't put either one on net. That feels like a big mistake, to have Keegan Colasar on a line with William Carlson because Carlson and Marcheseau are going to create chances, and the third player on that line needs to have some ability to finish. It should probably be, if you're going to mix the lines up, it should probably be Nick Waugh. Like, that should be the guy that goes there, but for some reason they scratch Nick Waugh to keep Keegan Colasar in, and, by the way, to keep Ryan Reeves in. In reality, Reeves should be out, Colasar should be on the fourth line, and Nick Waugh should be on that line with William Carlson. So I don't love that when they mix up the lines because Colasar with your best center just kind of feels a little stupid, a little wasteful with William Carlson, your best center. But the part that I really don't understand is playing Alex Petrangelo with Shea Theodore mm -hmm. for an entire game. I, I understand late, like the third period, you're down four to two. You need to score two goals in eight minutes. I understand then, absolutely. Put your two best guys on the ice. That's your best chance to come back and win. But the whole point of landing Alex Petrangelo was it gave the Golden Knights two awesome defensemen. So you could play a 60-minute game and 40, 45, maybe 50 in important games. 50 minutes a game, at least one awesome defenseman was going to be on the ice. But when you play them together, that means you're only going to get 20 to 25 minutes with one of those guys on the ice. And we've seen Shea Theodore over the last two seasons, he can carry play. When he's on the ice, the Golden Knights, they dominate shots, they dominate chances, they dominate goals. He, they've been awesome when Shea Theodore's on the ice. Petrangelo's supposed to be that guy too. And so you shouldn't be pairing them together. You should have them split up so that you get two awesome defensive pairings instead of one. So, I, again, late, you're losing? Absolutely. They're your two bets. But over the course of an entire game, those two should be split up the entire time. Do they still feel now that not only can they not waive Keegan Kosar, but they must play him as well without losing well, him? Well, 
He's been he's been fine. He's been perfectly fine as an NHL player, except for the whole scoring thing. But I I was amazed they took Nick Waugh out of the lineup. I would like Nick Waugh is much better than Keegan Colasar. Nick Waugh is better than Ryan Reeves and William Carrier, too. Like, and I'd argue Tomas Nosek. They scratch Nick Waugh for four forwards that are worse than Nick Waugh. And that to me was I that one I couldn't believe because Nick Waugh's a good player and he's a good third liner if you got to put him on the wing or you want to put him at center so like to me if, if you're Pete DeBoer and you again he's probably going back to the normal lines but yeah. if you want to mix up yeah. the lines and you got William Carlson and Jonathan Marcheseau and you've got to throw a winger on that line it should be Nick Waugh and if you want Keegan Colasar in so bad scratch Ryan Reeves like there's no real reason Ryan Reeves has to be in the lineup over Keegan Colasar like Colasar broke a guy's face in a fight. Ryan Reeves barely even fights people anymore. Did you did you like when they uh, elevated Tuck and, sh- and and when they did that and he, he played so well against Colorado? Uh, yeah, I mean, a- Alex Tuck has been in the spot with the Golden Knights where he is like the seventh best forward. Right. And he's right. always played on the third line. And unfortunately for him, a lot of it was with Cody Eakin. Alex Tuck is going to be awesome if he played a full season with Mark Stone or with whoever in that top six. Alex Tuck would absolutely be awesome. The problem for the Golden Knights is, is they have they have basically seven really good forwards. Right. So somebody's all at least one person's always going to be the odd man out. Usually it's Alex Tuck, and until you go Alex Tuck, it's Cody Eakin, or this year it's been Cody Glass and Nick Waugh or Keegan Colasar or something like that. Anytime he's on one of those top lines, he's going to be awesome. He's been pretty good on the third line, too. But when he's on those top lines, he's going to be awesome. Doesn't this always come back to we can blame Cody Eakin for everything? Yes. Oh, no doubt it just, about it. It just comes no back doubt. to Cody Eakin. Yeah, there's no question. that Whether the lines are mixed up or not, or wherever they elevate Tuck and put him, whether it's with uh, Carlson or, or Stevenson or whoever, uh, let's just blame Cody Eakin for everything. It just, it, just, it just feels so right when we blame Cody for everything. Like, Cody Glass hasn't been phenomenal this year. Yeah, but he hasn't been Cody Eakin. Exactly. He has not been Cody Eakin. <laughs> no. So so anything that's not Cody Eakin <laughs> is a best. major upgrade for the Golden Knights third line. Just don't be the worst player I, in the sport, and you're going to be an upgrade yeah, for the third line. I'm with you on Reeves as well. I don't. I, I guess it's more that he's always been there. He's always been the fourth line, and, you know, the muck it up line that we hear. And this is who DeBoer starts. He starts the fourth line a lot. But it's getting more and more like he, he's not, you know, there's no chances when he's there and he's not going to finish most. And, and I, at least, like you said, at least Colasar is getting chances. Now, he can't finish, but maybe one or two he will eventually. And that's more than what we've seen from Reeves this year. Absolutely. And Nick Waugh is better than both of them. So Nick Waugh should not be a healthy scratch when those other two are in the lineup. All right, coming up next, Brian Dutcher, the San Diego State head coach, joins the show. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios, this is the Press Box with Granny and Bischoff. Joining us now, the head coach of the San Diego State Aztecs, Brian Dutcher. Brian, how are you this morning? Hey, Dutch. Well, I'm nervous. We got uh, another (laughs) UNLV game today, obviously, and that always gets me uh, my nerves on edge. Okay, all right, I, I do have a question for you. Different team this year, but have you at all replayed last year's loss to UNLV to this year's team before this game? Well, we looked at it not from like a revenge standpoint, more from like here's what they try to do against us. Here's what they had success with. You know, they moved the ball, they attacked us, they opened up some double gaps and really drove us. And more from an X and O than saying, boy, they really ruined a, 
a perfect season for it. <laughs> uh, Brian, um, your team, I mean, I, when, when you lost Malachi last year, what did you think kind of a rebuild would be? And obviously you haven't rebuilt much because if you win tonight, you win the conference. But how were you going to replace that and, and, and kind of think, how, how has it worked out in terms of uh, when he left? And the biggest concern was like, it was easy last year. I just put it in Malachi's hands with the game on the line. You put it in your best player's hands. And so now it's like, where am I putting the ball with the game on the line if I want to run a ball screen? Am I better off throwing it in the low post? You know, how am I going to close games? And it's kind of been by committee, you know. I've had a lot of success with Jordan Shackle running off screens at the end, Matt Mitchell in the low post. Trey Pulliam has put a couple 18-point games on the board uh, uh, over the last two or three weeks. And so uh, that's been the biggest challenge for me. Instead of just saying give it to Malachi, I've had to really think, depending on who we play, where to put the ball at the end of a game. Uh, from from my vantage point before the season started, expected San Diego State to take a step back, losing Malachi Flynn. But you guys look solidly in the NCAA tournament. You're 20th in Ken Palm right now. Are, are you surprised at all you guys have been able to sustain close to the level you had last season? You know, I thought we'd be good because we stayed old. You know, I, uh, for senior night, I started five seniors, and four of them in the lineup anyway. And I started Joshua Tomajic over a junior. And so... Uh, with the pandemic, with less time working with the kids, it was a huge advantage for us to have an older team uh, with experienced pieces back. And even the new guys, two fifth-year seniors, had played a lot of college basketball. So uh, surprised? No, but uh, very thankful that we're able to maintain a level of play that we've come accustomed to at San Diego State. Uh, Brian, when it happened, I, I know most coaches in the league, including ones who are not in the NCAA tournament and who have no chance at it, said, why are we doing this? Now, my guess is your message to your team is, don't worry about it now. We're doing it. Go win the game tonight. But uh, we saw what happened to Boise last night. They lose. All of a sudden, Lenardi has them out, uh, you know, if whatever you want to put into that. And I know it was about TV, but take us through the thought process now when the league said you're going to make these games up. And you know what? There is maybe a risk in that, that it could cost us bids. Well, I voiced my opinion that I didn't think we should play the games. I didn't do it to the team. I did it at an administrative level, at a conference level. I thought it was a bad idea. I never said it to the team, and obviously when they said you're playing, I went to the team and go, hey, great, we're playing. We want to play. We want to play as many games as we can. So, you know, the way I spun it to the team wasn't the way I, I, I spun it to the conference and the people I talked to. So, uh, at this point, we're playing, so we're going to embrace it. We're going to go out. We're going to be ready, and it's going to be a hard-fought game tonight. Okay, if, if you were in the position that you were trying to sell the Mountain West to the NCAA tournament uh, committee, what would you say as to why the Mountain West deserves more respect that would help a Colorado State, a Utah State, a Boise State get in who are all on the bubble? I think it's just you have to throw your resume out there. You know, we we. We're obviously the best win for most of our conference teams. You know, Utah State has two wins over us. They're, they're saying that's a reason to be in. Colorado State split with us. Obviously split with Utah State. You know, so uh, I don't know if we have good outside wins other than within the conference, and that always makes it hard at the end of the day. I think we should be a, a three-bid league, four-bid league. But we all know what's happened over the years. The Power Five Conference, on, on Selection Sunday, dominate the board. And so I think at the end of the day, if we get two teams in, it might be business as usual. 
I want to talk to you about, because um, you guys have done as well as anyone in that league in the portal um, and trying to find kind of the right kids and mix, even if it's for a year. Uh, we've talked about UNLV needing to do more of that and trying to find these kids. How difficult has it been? I mean, I guess your success sells kids, but when you go against Power Fives and you kind of dip into that portal, has it been easier or tougher than you thought to kind of get the, the right fit that you want? It's just a lot of work, Ed. Obviously, you have to watch tape on all these kids. You have to make calls. The one thing you don't want is someone else's problem. So there are a lot of good players out there, but sometimes their attitudes don't match what you want to try to accomplish within your program. And so you're just looking uh, to fit pieces, and you have to evaluate, you have to make phone calls, and then you have to recruit. And uh, the recruitment's usually only about two weeks long. You get on the phone, uh, you introduce yourself, and right now there's no visits again until – no earlier than May 31st, and might even be extended beyond that. So it's a challenge, and, and one that uh, is very competitive on the transfer market, and we've had great success. And it doesn't hurt that we've got players that have gone on uh, from here and made it to the NBA, you know, and that's what everybody's ultimate goal is, is to play on a big stage, play in the NCAA tournament, and have an ability to play beyond college. Assuming the NCAA does allow players to basically get one transfer without sitting out, what is your expectation for what the transfer portal looks like this offseason? It'll probably blow up. There'll be so many players in there. <laughs> the whole website will probably crash. So, <laughs> you know, it's, gonna, it's not going to be a good thing for college basketball. Obviously, we've tried to take advantage of, of what what the rules are as far as taking transfers. But I just think, you know, you look at, the nature of basketball. These kids are changing high schools. They're changing AAU teams, and they're gonna. That's the culture. The NBA's changing teams, putting teams together, trying to uh, switch up teams all the time, and that's college basketball. You're gonna see a lot of movement, and it's it's not gonna be good for the game, in my opinion, in the long run. But it's gonna be probably what we're all gonna deal with. Uh. It was always said in that league, UNLV, San Diego State, at one point, uh, New Mexico could get whoever they wanted, at least for home and homes, and that's why the rest of the league really suffered. They could not get people. Um, you know, you have wins against UCLA and ASU this year. I remember a time when UCLA wouldn't play you because they said there's no there's no edge for us there. If we lose, we get killed, and if we win, we're supposed to. So as, you, as your program has been built, is it easier and easier? Do you feel now you can go get anyone to play a home and home or even to come to you? We can't get anyone, but we can get an occasional Pac-12 team that will play as a home-and-home. Home. You know, we, have, we went to Arizona State this year, so that will be a return game. You know, and I'm always I'm calling everybody and everywhere to try to get games. And sometimes they'll play, sometimes they won't. But I've always believed that uh, uh, if the top of your league can get those kind of games and win them, and then the other ones – that aren't as fortunate to get them, if they can end up beating you during the conference, they still recoup that <laughs> yeah. value. You know, so I'm not I'm not for a 20-game conference schedule. I think it's ridiculous. Uh, Brian, you know you just sounded like you were trying to make yourself a sacrificial lamb of, hey, we'll go beat a Pac-12 school, and then everybody else come beat us, and we'll be a better conference. <laughs> well, I, I said they could try. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Brian, I'm, I'm curious, from the outside looking in, why do you think the UNLV program has not been able to compete at the top of this conference for, we're, we're getting close to a decade now since they've really been a, had a solid team? I think you've got to have continuity. You know, I think if, if given enough time, TJ will get it done. It's not an overnight process, you know, because now when you switch coaches, 
half the team leaves. You know, so it's not like you come in, well, boy, there's all this talent that Marvin left TJ. Well, some of the better players left the program, and then it's a complete rebuild. And so you're not going to rebuild anything that's going to last in one year. It's going to take time. And, and so people are so quick to say, well, we haven't had the success we want in two years. If we don't have it in the third year, that's it. You don't even get your freshman class to their senior year, and they're looking to move coaches. You know, and that's not UNLV only. That's most programs in the country. You know, the patience level is really low, and, and the, the programs that end up doing well are the ones that stick with a, a, a decision and a process and, and give a guy time to get the job done. What uh, obviously you've watched them closely now because you're gonna you're gonna finally play them. Um, so what do you expect tonight, comparative to what you saw from them last year? There's different players, obviously. Yeah, well they they're just as dangerous. Obviously Hamilton is. You can do a great job on him, and he can bounce up and score at any time. He's gifted. Uh, Jenkins can score the ball. Grill can shoot the ball. You know, so if we run into a, a UNLV team tonight that's shooting an elite level that makes a lot of threes. That's the great, the great equalizer in college basketball. And so uh, they're capable of doing that. Jong, I like him. I've always liked Jong as a defender and a finisher around the rim. So I think they've got a good team. And, and if they can continue to build some momentum, maybe they'll do some damage in the conference tournament. It's possible. Well, he is Brian Dutcher, head coach of San Diego State. Brian, we appreciate your time this morning. Thanks, Thanks Dutch. for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. Sorry. UNLV and San Diego State playing at 6 o'clock tonight on CBS Sports Network. Um, I, I, I find the, the interesting part there about talking about, you know, why UNLV hasn't been good is the continuity part, because obviously that's been an issue for UNLV, and it's not just the basketball head coach. It's been an issue in terms of athletic director. It's been an issue in terms of president and football Presidents. coach. Uh, oh they've they've gone through the, the pretty much the four most important positions for the UNLV athletic department continue to change uh but i find it interesting because brian dutcher is like the prime example of continuity because how long was steve fisher there and then they just all right here's steve fisher's assistant brian dutcher that's as continuous as it can possibly get in college basketball when you change a head coach yeah i mean he was with he was with fisher in michigan um he's been with him forever and he was named coach in waiting you know i don't know how many years Fisher had left when that was named, but you, and that's the other thing you knew. And that's what hasn't happened at a place like UNLV. You knew Dutcher was going to be the coach years out. So you could recruit to that. So you could say, Hey, if you like Fisher and you're going to come play here, nothing's going to change. You know, I mean, Brian put his own stamp on it, but you, you know who the guy is. You're not going to be surprised at anything. This is how we run a program. And that had to help over the years. And like you said, with, with UNLV, that just hasn't been there. I mean, and, you know, I mean, I'm watching last night um, when Baylor wins the Big 12, uh, Chamachacha is, is running in the, in the, in the, um, in the you know, in the locker room throwing water on people. And, and then you look at other places and the other guys are there and they're, they're, they're playing another team. So, yeah, I mean, uh, we've talked about TG. I think we both agree you've got to make a move next year. I just think this program, you can't keep being this way without at least showing progress to where – top three, top two, like you've said it often, be on the bubble. Like, like you know, when it comes to this time of year, you're in the conversation. You're even Boise State, which maybe just got knocked off the bubble, but you've been in the conversation this long. And I do think that step has to be made the next year, and I know you do because you've talked about it often. Yeah, the, the idea of continuity, it is, it is easy to have continuity when the team is good or when the team is at least, like, okay. The problem right. for UNLV is they've had so many bad teams over the years, and they have an even – 
They haven't even sniffed the, the NCAA tournament for what this is going to be the eighth season since they've been to the NCAA tournament last. They haven't been on the bubble in any of those seasons. So it's not even like they've had a team that was close and you were like, well, if we just bring everything back, we'll be a little bit better next year and we'll get in. They haven't even been that close. So that's why UNLV, that and a lot of other issues with the athletic department or, or president or whatever it is, but that's why UNLV doesn't have continuity. It's because they're not close year to year. Uh, I'm going to give you a stat that you've won. This would be a Bischoff's brief stat. You ready? I am you ready, ready. for I'm you ready for A++ in terms Enough of couch. a stat? You ready? <laughs> Brian Dutcher has been on the SDSU sidelines for 33 of SDSU's 37 victories in a series. This is compliments of uh, the sports information director, Mike May. So 33 of 37 victories in a series. Brian Dutcher's been on sidelines. Those 33 wins have come against nine different UNLV coaches. Oh. A Bill Baino, plus, Max Good. Plus, Bill Baino, Max plus, Good. Charlie plus, Spoonauer, Jay Spoonauer, plus, Lon Kruger, plus, Dave Rice, Todd plus, Simon, Marvin Menzies, TJ Oslo. Plus. Think about that. Oh, got the Think Todd about that Simon. number. The Todd plus. Simon one in yes. there, too. I mean, can you believe the guy's been on the sideline for 33 wins and they've faced nine different head coaches? Like, <laughs> there's your difference between continuity and not much continuity. Plus. <laughs> oh, I am I am so happy. Todd Simon, and what did he end up coaching? 11 games, 12 yes. games, something like that, that he made it in. Phenomenal. <laughs> Listen, we're going to look back. Jesus. We're going to look back and talk. Simon's going to be the best coach well, UNLV had in the I last mean, five years or so. <laughs> Look what he's doing at Southern Utah. They're like among they're, the nation's leader in scoring. They're like seventeen and three yes, this year. Granted, yes. they're not really they're they're at a bad conference, but still what? they were they were horrible. He I think he took over. They were six and like twenty four or something when he took them I over, mean, and now they're seventeen and three. Of of those nine guys, let's be honest. Other than Kruger, he might have done the most since he left. <laughs> All right, coming up next, we got to get into this Texas Longhorn story and how a song is driving a school apart. I give them credit. They attacked from all angles. I think Steve and, and Michael and everybody did a great job of, I mean, there were players, there were coaches, there were non-football people whatsoever that reached out and, and were in my ear and trying to convince me to come down here and, and tell me all the great things about it. You're sitting in the press box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Follow them on Twitter at Ed Graney and Bischoff underscore Tyler. Jason Fitz is going to join us at 8.30. Sam and Ash coming up at 9.15. But... I want to get into this Texas Longhorn story because the Texas Tribune uh, did a great job to find a bunch of emails from Texas donors that they sent to the athletic department uh, because Texas donors are not very happy with the way the current players are treating the song Eyes of Texas. Now, a little bit of background. This is a song that gets played after every Texas home game. Um, I guess there have been a lot of people in Austin that have tried to get them to stop playing it uh, because the song, uh, and I'll read from the Texas Tribune, is played to the tune of I've Been Working on the Railroad, was historically performed at campus minstrel shows, and the title is linked to a saying from Confederate Army Commander Robert E. Lee. So apparently people are trying to get Texas to stop playing this song, and it even got to a point last year where after Texas lost a game, Sam Ellinger, their quarterback, stood on the field for the playing of it 
while the rest of the team left. Normally, the entire team would go stand for the playing of the Eyes of Texas. So when that happened, when Sam Ellinger was the only one that stood there, uh, a lot of donors started emailing in, uh, threatening to pull their donations, basically saying they were not happy and that the Eyes of Texas should be the highest priority for this university. Well, you, you missed the, you know, the most important part that Sam Ellinger was not wearing a mask. Uh, and, and yesterday, neither is anyone else now in the, in the entire state of Texas. It's back to 100% capacity. Everything's okay there. Um, this, is, this is a huge deal. Now, Texas, is the, the joke around college you know, athletics has always been Texas has more money than God. I mean, people think Notre Dame, to, Texas has more money than anyone. Anyway, so... Yeah, I do. It, I guess it depends on which donors we're talking about, because there are donors there who give a lot of money to that athletic department. I don't know which donors we're talking about. It seems like they're saying I will no longer be giving money. I guess it depends on who that is. If they think it's serious, I'll tell you what though. This is interesting to me in that story. Steve Sarkeesian, the new coach, said, "I know this much: the Eyes of Texas is our school song. We're going to sing that song. We're going to sing that proudly." Well. Given Sam Ellinger was the only one on the field last year, I can't wait till Sark makes that part of his opening statement to the team because he might have some pushback from a lot of players in that locker room who know kind of the, the roots and, and, and the history of that song. I thought that was interesting that the head coach was pretty adamant that we're going to sing that proudly. He might be the only one on the field doing it. One of the most damning emails that uh, was dug up by the Texas Tribune was this. Less than 6% of our current student body is black. The tail cannot be allowed to wag the dog, and the dog must instead stand up for what is right. Nothing forces those students to attend UT Austin. Encourage them to select an alternate school now. Wow. That is wow. such a brutal email oh. to send and to suggest that the University of Texas at Austin should have zero black people at it is wow. an unbelievable thing for anybody to say in 2020, which is when these emails were sent. Like, that's unbelievable to me. The idea that you, like, that as a person, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, you know, this is something that is offensive to me, this is something that, you know, hurts me or whatever it is, that you would not take the time to listen to what they have to say or try to understand what they're feeling and instead just say, no, leave. You don't need to be here then. Just leave. That to me is what always blows my mind with these types of scenarios wow. is people are not only like unwilling to change, they're unwilling to listen to just the idea of them yeah. changing is what always blows my mind. And that's that's what you're dealing with in Texas. You've got a bunch of donors that, that and it's not that they're unwilling to change. They're unwilling to even listen to the idea of change. They wouldn't even contemplate it and would rather just try to kick everybody else who disagrees with them. That that email was written by a fellow named Larry Wilkinson. What it doesn't say is the president immediately said, how much does Larry give? So, you know, I mean, is, 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 is Larry writing more zeros on the check? But we, as, as ignorant and as stupid and as vile as that email is, how much does Larry give? That's what Texas cares about. Oh yeah, that's what they care that's about, what they man. Care about how much? Yeah. How much do you give us? Oh, seventy-five thousand. Okay, we oh, don't care about you. Seventy-five <laughs> million. Oh yeah, yes. Larry.